Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. We'll be looking at the books which have inspired the Christmas television schedules. And we'll be looking at cars in books. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello. Over the next hour, we'll be keeping you up to date with news from the world of books. New releases, bestsellers and recommendations of some great books to read. Thank you for joining us today. As usual, it's a packed show. We've been looking at Christmas television schedules to spot some fabulous books that have been made into films or TV adaptions for you to enjoy. We've taken a look at the various newspapers and their suggestions for the book of the year. How many have you read? And we're recommending some great books with cars at their heart. Is anyone driving home for Christmas? And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Yes, we have indeed. And don't forget, we really would like to hear from you. Um, if you have a favourite author you're reading uh, at the moment, um, or you have a book particularly you want to recommend, let us know. And particularly if you're uh, running a local book club or a local author, please do get in touch. You can get in touch by emailing me at julian at River Radio. Uh, well, I beg your pardon, Julian at River dot radio with all your news. And we'll be delighted to include your news, tidbits and and suggestions in future programmes. We will indeed, we will indeed. So let's begin with a roundup of those interesting tidbits that we've spotted in the press about books. Now, I don't know about you, Julian, but I rather enjoy those medieval manuscripts with those fabulous sort of initial letters that have been drawn mm. around. I just, Carved, yes, yes. carved into the cover. Absolutely, yes. Yes. And a late 15th century historiated initial O cut from a choir book is on sale at Christie's before Christmas. Now, I've actually done a course on um, medieval manuscript books and, and historiated um initial means that this actually tells a little story so uh, so the choir book is thought to mark the feast of saint agatha and it has luscious green acanthus leaves woven around the christmas uh, the christian saint so i was thinking if you're looking at uh, a christmas present for me i think it's just the four to five thousand pounds at christie's What's that? I can just break the piggy bank. Exactly. (laughs) Well, uh, following on from your 15th century, I've got a little bit of a tidbit here from the 16th century. And there are two 16th century books on exploration have been found in a library of an English home. How exciting. I know. (laughs) Even more so for the owner because they've just been sold for £450,000. Wow, now that's a Christmas present. That certainly is. I bet you'll be getting a bottle of Prosecco out after that. Uh, (laughs) Now, these rare volumes um, were by the English writer Richard Hacklett. Um, they originally they were expected to sell 
for just £5,000. But they sparked so much interest in the antiquarian book world uh, and amongst the collectors that they, they, the prize rocketed. And the reason being is that it contained an original folding map of the world dated from 1599. And that map was often missing from other copies that had come onto the market later. So really quite a rare, I mean, very rare find indeed. Fantastic, that was beautiful. And uh, Richard Hackley, he was a famous adventurer, wasn't he? I think so. I, I presume is that is Hacklet? Is that how you pronounce it? An unusual spelling. Yes, H A K L U Y T. Now there we are. That's something for our listeners. If What's you that? know how to pronounce that surname, do email us. It's H A K L U Y T. Yeah. Uh, but we'd like to know. Yes. Yeah, I think he was. Yes. Yeah. Uh, which hence, hence, of course, the map. Yeah, um, absolutely. Okay. That sounds yeah. brilliant. Mm. Right, moving straight up to date, actually. I've got to say that the Romantic Novelists Association has written in umbrage a letter <laughs> to the literary age, uh, editor of the Sunday Times after they did a roundup of the newspaper's best books of the year and they failed to mention any romantic novels at all. Mm. Dear, now that's Barbara a bit... Cartland would be turning in a grave. Exactly, and to be fair, they had a point because two authors of the Romantic Novelist Association were in the top ten at the time, which was just oh, a right. couple of weeks back. Yeah. So they were Philippa <laughs> Ashley and Millie Johnson. And uh, I just thought to allow me to address the balance somewhat... I should tell everybody about those books. So Indeed. Philippa Ashley's latest book is A Special Cornish Christmas, published by Avon. And Philippa is a Sunday Times best-selling author of heartwarming, funny, romantic fiction. And Millie Johnson is on the top of the top 10 best-selling fiction, female fiction authors in the UK, which is pretty impressive. Mm. And her latest um, novel is I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day, published by Simon and & Schuster. And it's supposed to be the perfect Christmas read. The story is filled with love, laughter and unexpected romances. Now, I know quite a number of our listeners actually do read romances. So there's two great recommendations for you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I wonder, you know, when, when, when in this modern world of people being accused of things, you know, if, if, if somebody uh, is dis- um, discriminates about somebody who's slightly older, they're ageist. So what, what is the newspaper guilty of? Romantic sages? or whatever snobism <laughs> anyway <thing. laughs> who knows who knows but good good that it's pointed out and yes they should have they should include some romantic absolutely well. yeah anyway richard and judy have um they have announced their latest book club reading list and as always it's i've got a fantastic list um of suggestions which will allow you to escape the hassle and the bustle of Christmas. And here they are. The first off the block is uh, The Night She Disappeared by Lisa Jewell, which is published by Penguin. And it's a gothic, multi-layered tale. Yes, Richard and Judy Book Club suggestions are always good, aren't they? They are, they are. Uh, The second one is False Witness by Karen Slaughter, published by HarperCollins. And that's a stunning, hard-hitting thriller that pulls no punches. Now, Karen Slaughter's a well-known... Uh, thriller writer so we can expect this to be very good 
Indeed. And coming round the bend at number three is 100 Years of Lenny and Margot by Marianne Cronin. This is published by Doubleday and it's a stunning debut novel. Uh, and it's quite an extraordinary tale of, of love and life and heartbreak. Uh, and it centres around Lenny and Margot who share their stories of their combined 100 years of life together. Yes. Now, the next one is one that uh, I certainly am interested in called The Paris Library by Janet Skelsleen Charles, published by Hodron Stoughton. So it's a book about books, lovers and book lovers set in World War France. What's not to love on that? So the uh, beautiful Odile Suchet lands her dream job at the American Library in Paris, but it's 1939, war has begun, and France is about to fall to Hitler's war machine. And the American Library will be duly purified. And we think we all Mm, know what that means. Exactly. So Adil and her fellow librarians go undercover and join the French resistance. And their chief weapon? Books. Mm, Well, that sounds really good, I must admit. Uh, My next offering, or rather um, uh, from from the book club, um, is The Last Things He Told Me by Laura Dave, published by Viper. Um, Now, when Hannah's husband vanishes, leaving behind a note and a bag of cash, she sets about unravelling the mystery, and she's helped by her stepdaughter, Bailey, who is equally in the dark. Or is she a clever and compulsive and a very twisty tale itself? That sounds good. And finally, from the Rich and Judy um, book club list for the winter is The Searcher by um, Tana West, published by Penguin. And it's about a retired US city cop who's seeking peace and tranquility in the green hills of remote rural Ireland. And instead, he finds himself sucked into a missing person mystery. Gosh. And just um, uh, finally, on a, on a, a tidbit um, of information, um, poss- you probably have read that the um, best-selling author, Wilbur Smith, died recently. And Zafra has um, shared the details of his 50th title called Stormtide, which is part of an unpublished treasure trove of novels and story outlines, which is really quite interesting because of, you know, fans of Wilbur Smith will be really keen to know that. Yes. And it's, yeah, and it's scheduled to be published on the 14th of April next year, and that is Stormtide. That sounds though there's lots more to come as well. I think there, there is. Mm-hmm. That was a find. So we're always looking for interesting angles to suggest books for you, and we've covered transport before in planes and trains, and this week it is the 10 of the car and whilst not being in any shape or form a petrol head we did find some delightful books to recommend and i think you've got a charming one right at I, the beginning i i have indeed heather and and, it, and, and it's a, and it's a favorite um uh with 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 I would imagine with everybody. And I've chosen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang Brilliant. by Ian Fleming. Yes. Um, and in fact, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was the last book that Ian Fleming wrote, and it was published two months after Fleming died at the very early age of 56, uh, and, and that was in 1964. Gosh, that was young. They were very young, mm. yes. The books, which boasted a, um, a wild imagination, were written for um, Fleming's son, Casper, who he nicknamed 003 and a half. Oh, bless. Uh, <laughs> um, 
and it's and it's even rather sadder. He died on his son's twelfth birthday, oh. and so and of course never saw the book in print. Um, but believe it or not, the book um, uh, uh, the, the car was actually inspired by a series of aero engine racing cars um, uh, designed by Count Louis Zabrowski in the early nineteen twenties, and and Fleming was a was a keen motorist himself. Now, of course, the the story is famous because of the film of the same name, which is loosely based on Fleming's original work, but the storyline is very much different from the film. Now, the book, it's a a little bit darker in tone, uh, while the film is a mystical adventure of song and dance. uh, The book um, involves helping the police track down criminals, which, in fact, uh, yeah, robbers and uh, and gun runners. I always think it's great when you've seen a film and you think you know it, then to go back and read the book and discover what the author really intended. Yes. And they say, call Lummy. It's quite, you know, quite different. You know? <laughs> <laughs> now, the, it, with the, it, the, the story centres on the Pot family um, and they're, they're still the centre book. Um, and this time, Commander Caractacus Potts is a successful inventor who, after making some money by inventing a whistling suite and selling the recipe rights to Lord Scrumptious, the local wealthy confectioner, he goes and buys a dilapidated car, which is the Paragon Panther, the sole car ever made by the Paragon Motor Company before it went bust. Oh dear! Uh, yeah, I know. And Commander Potts' wife doesn't make doesn't make the film. Um, uh, neither do the a- a- evil bandits, which are in the books uh, as villains. But um, but the but the car um, is in the book and 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 comes through. And I have a little bit of a reading for Great. you. Great, let's do that. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chapter Two: All Rusty and Mildewed. The Pot family wasn't a very conventional family. That is, they were all rather out of the ordinary. Even Mimsy must have been rather an adventurous sort of mother, or she wouldn't have married an explorer and inventor like Commander Caractacus Pot, R.N., retired, who had, as they say, no visible means of support, meaning he was someone who doesn't do regular work that brings in regular money, but depends on occasional windfalls from lucky explorations or inventions. So when it came to buying a car, they were all determined that it shouldn't be just any car, but something a bit different from everyone else's. Not one of those black beetle saloon cars that look much the same back and front, so that in the distance you don't know if they're coming or going, but something rather special, something rather adventurous. Well, they hunted all that afternoon and all the next day. They looked at brand new cars and they visited the second-hand car showrooms, where smart salesmen offered Commander and Mrs. Pot cigarettes and Jeremy and Jemima sweets just to try and tempt them to buy. But Commander Pot knew pretty well all there is to know about cars, having been an engineer officer in the Navy and being an inventor as well. And one look under the bonnet and one trial listening carefully to the sound of the engine was generally enough for him even if he didn't notice that the speedometer had been disconnected or that the chassis was bent because of some crash whose scratches and dents the salesman had carefully painted over. You have to be very cautious about buying anything second-hand. You never know how careful the last owner has been. And anyway, whatever the thing is, if it's in good order, why does the person want to get rid of it? And then at the end of the second day, they came to a broken-down little garage run by a once-famous racing driver. It was really only a big tin shed with a couple of grimy petrol pumps outside, and inside the concrete floor was slippery with oil, and everywhere there were bits and pieces of old cars that the garage man had been tinkering with, really, as far as one could see, just for the fun of it. But he was the sort of enthusiast Commander Pot always had a warm corner in his heart for. 
The two of them went on talking for a long time, while Mimsy and Jeremy and Jemima, who were pretty tired by then, grew more and more impatient. Suddenly they were surprised to see Commander Pot follow the garage man round to the back of his shed, where there was a long, low object hidden under a tarpaulin. The garage man looked Commander Pot and the family, each one, carefully up and down, and then he went to one end of the tarpaulin and slowly rolled it back. Well, I can't tell you how disappointed Mimsy and the children were. From the way the garage man had behaved, they thought there must be some splendid treasure of a car under the tarpaulin. But what did they see? A wreck! That's all. Just the remains, rusty and broken and bent, of a very long, low, four-seater open motor car without a hood and with the green paint peeling off in strips. Well, there she is, said the garage man sadly. She once knew every racing track in Europe. In the old days, there wasn't a famous driver in Britain who hadn't driven her at one time or another. She's still wearing England's racing green, as you can see, and that was from early in the 30s. She's a 12-cylinder, 8-litre supercharged Paragon Panther. They only made one of them, and then the firm went broke. This is the only one in the world. Doesn't look much, does she? I'm afraid she's due for the scrap heap. Can't afford to go on giving her living space. They're coming to tow her away next week, as a matter of fact. Take her to the dump, pick her up in a big grab and drop her between one of those giant hydraulic presses. One crunch and just squashes them into a sort of square metal biscuit. Then she'll go to the smelting works to be melted down just for the raw metal. Seems a shame, doesn't it? You can almost see from her eyes those big martial racing headlights that she knows what's in store for her. But there it is. You can see the shape she's in and it would need hundreds of pounds to get her on the road again, even supposing there was someone nowadays who could afford to run her. Commander Pot was looking curiously excited. Mind if I look her over? Go ahead. Oh. I know. Well, anyway, as as we know, the car gets fully restored. This wonderful four-seater car with its enormous bonnet is named Chitty Chitty Bang Bang by the family after the noise it makes um, following it being started. And then it usually gives two backfires as well. So that gave it its name. And now the adventure begins. The family decide they're going to go uh, off for a, uh, for a picnic and uh, they're caught up in the traffic on the way to the beach. Uh, and whilst they're stuck in traffic, the car instructs Commander Pot to pull a switch, which causes Chitty Chitty Bang Bang to spout wings and take off, flying up and over the stranded traffic, landing at Goodwin Sands. You want a car like that. Oh, you do. Especially Absolutely. going into London. Yeah, <laughs> I'm stuck on the M25. Yes. Uh, and they, they have a great time. They've had their lunch. They've played ball games. They've swum. And anyway, they're having a bit of a doze. And the tide traps them. Um, and they manage to get in the car. And Chitty Chitty Bang Bang um, in, instructs Commander Potts to pull another switch. And it she turns into a hovercraft and whizzes them across the water to Calais. And that's only part of the adventure. And when they arrive at Calais on the beach, the children go off exploring. They find a secret cave. And in there, there's a cache of explosives and guns and then there's a standoff with a gang of robbers sure. uh, oh yes and then there's there's the kidnapping of the children there's hot pursuit to Paris after them and ultimately the thwarting of the thieves plans by the police and the pot family 
Now, an interesting tidbit about the film is that it was produced by Albert Cubby Broccoli, who was, in fact, the producer of the James Bond films, which, as we know, are all based on Ian Fleming's character. Um, Roald Dahl had been asked to write the screenplay, um, and uh, Dahl himself had also worked in the same espionage circles as Fleming during the war. But he later complained that he hated the experience, and they never actually used the script. No, interestingly. (laughs) And then on the other side of this... Cubby Broccoli, um, I suppose in a bit of a revenge, thought the script was so dreadful. Anyway, he didn't invite Dahl to meet the Queen at the premiere of the film. <laughs> Touché. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, there are reportedly six different versions of this uh, iconic phantasmagorical machine. Um, local resident and radio and television presenter Chris Evans um, bought one for £500,000 in 2012. Five years later, two of his fans... Um, on his, of his Radio 2 show were given a fun wedding present when um, Chris Evans himself chauffeured them um, to their wedding in Chitty. Oh, how fantastic. I wonder if he still yeah, yeah. got it. I wonder, I wonder. Um, and all in all, uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a lovely children's story that still entertains. And I think it, it, it's not just for children. It's such an entertaining yes. film and story yes. for everybody. Uh, and now Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is still in print and it's published by Pam McMillan. Uh, but don't be confused with the the novelization of the film uh, that's quite a different book altogether so you need to look for chitty chitty bang bang by ian fleming yes that's that's a very very good yeah. point yeah. and of course chitty chitty bang bang was filmed in the beautiful village of turville which is just four miles outside high wickham so ah. if anyone is looking for a boxing day walk then i can thoroughly recommend a lovely circular walk which starts at the frog inn great pub mm-hmm. and um and you walk past through the fields and past the um past the the windmill on the top of the oh, hill oh super yeah it's lovely. really good and turville of course is a bit of a star village so it's been used as uh, dibley in the vicar of dibley that's where oh is that yeah right. and it's also been in killing Eve. Oh, right. So the books of Killing Eve are written by Luke Jennings. um, Mm -hmm. And of course, they're not called Killing Eve. They're called Codename Villanelle is the the first one of the Luke Jennings Jennings books. So um, all in all, that walk is a really good idea. Mm. And uh, then inspire you to buy a copy of the book. Mm. Well, very interestingly that, that it was filmed um, locally um, because, in fact, uh, the, the, the novel itself, again, how film and novel diverge, was actually set in Kent, not far from yes. the M20 motorway. <laughs> but anyway, it's, so you're not far from the M25, so there we go. <laughs> there you are, that is true. That is sadly true. <laughs> right. They do say never judge a book by its cover, but I'm afraid that is exactly what I did with my next book. And I've got to say, it was a perfect decision. Uh, The book is called The Art of Racing in the Rain by Garth Stein, and it's published by HarperCollins. And I remember I was in this bookshop, and I, you know how when you want a book, but you don't really know what type of book you're looking for. Yes. You're dithering along the shelves. You are, yes. And then there was a tabletop with full of so you can see the covers because normally mm. you can only just see the spines so yeah. it's a little bit boring but anyway you can see all the the covers of the books and this cover um had a 
dark with his head out of the window, you know, sort of like going mm-hmm. along and the wind was in his ears. He was playing about. And it yes, was just fabulous. Yeah. And he was just looking as though he was enjoying life so yeah. much. And I'm just stupid, I know, and I bought the book. But it was really entertaining and uplifting. But it does break your heart a little bit. Um, oh. So the tale is told by Enzo, the dog. And if mm-hmm. dogs really could talk, they would tell you exactly like it is. And that's that's what Enzo does. So there's no frills, no lies, just just facts, uh, good or bad, uh, but always with unswerving loyalty. Mm. And uh, and this is a story about a man and a dog who share a love of racing and Ferraris, hence the relevance to Car Week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also about their shared experiences over the years, dealing with love and loss. And through Enzo's, Enzo's eyes, we learn about human nature, how individuals deal with adversity, and how focus, grit and determination can ultimately triumph against apparently insurmountable odds, and especially where love is involved, uh, which is obviously the heart of the book. Mm. Now, the author draws wonderful parallels between the skills and focus a racing driver needs to win a race, particularly when racing in the rain, hence the title, Mm -hmm. and how those same skills um, and the importance of being focused on the outcome can keep us from skidding out of control in real life. Mm-hmm. And he makes you believe that if you want a thing badly enough, then anything is possible. And so I just want to give you a little reading of the book. This is near the end when Enzo is um, is very, very old and he's oh. finished. He's finishing his life, really. Anyway, oh. this is a little reading. Gestures are all that I have. Sometimes they must be grand in nature. And while I occasionally step over the line and into the world of the melodramatic, it is what I must do in order to communicate clearly and effectively, in order to make my point understood without question. And that's why I'm here now waiting for Denny to come home. He should be here soon, lying on the cool tiles of the kitchen floor in a puddle of my own urine. I'm old. The door opens and I hear him with his familiar cry, Yo, Zoe! Usually I can't help but put aside my pain and hoist myself up to my feet, wag my tail, sling my tongue around and shove my face into his crotch. It takes human-like willpower to hold back on this particular occasion, but I do. I hold back. I don't get up. I'm acting. Enzo? I hear his footsteps, the concern in his voice. He finds me and looks down. I lift my head, wagging my tail feebly so it taps against the floor. I play the part. He shakes his head and runs his hand through his hair, sets down the plastic bag from the grocery that has his dinner in it. I can smell the roast chicken through the plastic. Tonight he's having roast chicken and an iceberg lettuce salad. Oh, ends, he says. He reaches down to me. Crouches, touches my head like he does, along the crease behind the ear, and I lift my head and lick at his forearm. What happened, kid? he asks. Gestures can't explain. Can you get up? I try and I scramble. My heart takes off, lunges ahead because, no, I can't. I panic. I thought I was just acting, but I really can't get up. Shit, life imitating art. Take it easy, kid, he says, 
pressing down on my chest to calm me. I've got you. He lifts me easily, he cradles me, and I can smell the day on him. I can smell everything he's done. His work, the auto shop where he's been behind the counter all day, standing, making nice with customers that yell at him because their BMWs don't work right and it costs too much to fix them and that makes them mad so they have to yell at someone. I can smell his lunch. He went to the Indian buffet he likes. All you can eat. It's cheap and sometimes he takes a container with him and steals extra portions of the tandoori chicken and yellow rice and has it for dinner too. I can smell beer. He stops somewhere. The Mexican restaurant up the hill. I can smell the tortilla chips on his breath. Now it makes sense. Usually I'm excellent with elapsed time, but I wasn't paying attention because of my emoting. He places me gently in the tub and turns on the handheld shower and thing and says, easy ends. He says, sorry I was late. I should have come straight home, but the guys from work insisted. I told Craig I was quitting and he trails off and I realise he thinks my accident was because he was late. Oh no, that's not how it was meant. It's so hard to communicate because there are so many moving parts. There's presentation and there's interpretation, and they're so dependent on each other, it makes things very difficult. I didn't want him to feel bad about this. I wanted him to see the obvious, because it's okay for him to let me go. He's been going through so much, and he's finally through it. He needs to not have me around to worry about him anymore. He needs me to be free to be brilliant. After this happened, Danny will be free to live his life and I will return to Earth in a new form as a man and I will find him and shake his hand and comment on how talented he is and then I'll wink at him and say, Enzo says hello, and turn and walk quickly away as he calls after me. Do I know you? He will call. Have we met before? So it's a love story and it's also a story about determination to succeed when the chips are down. You don't have to be a dog lover to appreciate it, but if you are, then that would be all the better. But it's a thoroughly engaging book. It sounds very nice. Well, <clears throat> perhaps on a, a less sad note, um, the, the, the book I've chosen uh, as my second book is The Yellow Rolls Royce by Jack Pearl, which was uh, published by Pocket Books in 1965. And in fact, it's, a, it's the novelization of Terence Rattigan's screenplay of the 1965 film of the same name. And it tells the story of a Yellow Rolls Royce and three of its owners. Brilliant. Yeah, and the first of the of the stories involves Charles, Marquis of Frinton, who is Under Secretary of State at the Foreign Office, mm-hmm. who has bought the car as a 10th wedding anniversary present for his French-born wife, Eloise. Now, unfortunately, uh, today the races... Um, uh, are, are the, 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 the Marquis unfortunately finds Eloise in the back of the car with her lover, John Fane, oh, no. with lines drawn Oh, oh dear. Yes. <laughs> anyway, needless to say, uh, he doesn't, uh, the, the Marquis doesn't want a scandal. Um, he doesn't divorce his wife, but he returns the car to Hooper's. And when asked politely why this was so, he simply said, 
it displeases me. Yes, it would be very difficult to keep the car after that, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would, it would. Then the next story <clears throat> um, takes us um, over 20,000 miles away where the yellow Rolls Royce finds herself in Genoa and is purchased by um, an unsavoury gentleman called Paolo Maltese, who's in fact an American gangster. Mm-hmm. And he buys the car and is touring Italy with his bored fiance Mae Jenkins. And um, Maltese's right-hand man, Joey Friedlander. Now, um, uh, Paolo has to return to America to deal with some business. And needless to say, May finds herself no longer bored after meeting the handsome Stefano, uh, who is a street photographer. And it's not long before the drawn blinds in the rear of the Rolls Royce play a central part once more. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) And the third and final story, and perhaps the most uh, heroic um, story uh, of the tale, takes us um, a further 335 miles away from Jet. Genoa to Trieste, which is on the border of Yugoslavia. And the year is 1941. Ah. Now, the beautiful yellow Rolls Royce has seen better days and she's to be found in a filthy condition in a a repair shop with Occasione written on it, which means bargain, special offer, mm-hmm. painted on the windscreen. Anyway, the car is rescued and bought by a lady called Gerda Millet, who's a very wealthy American widow uh, who's been touring America. I'm sorry, I beg your pardon, touring Europe. And uh, just before the invasion of Yugoslavia by Nazi Germany, Gerda encounters a general called Davidge, who's a very charismatic anti-fascist who commandeers the Rolls-Royce to sneak into Yugoslavia hidden in the boot. Uh As you can imagine, um, love follows. um, um, So to many, many daring exploits, driving partisans to where they need to go. But ultimately, Gerda, who's... Really wants to stay, is, returns to America along with the Rolls Royce because <clears throat> Davidge says she must tell everyone what is happening in Europe. Right. That sounds a great book. It, it is a great film, a great book. And it was turned, you know, the film was a, a very good and it has an absolutely fantastic cast, the great and the good of Hollywood, uh, including Ingrid Bergman, <clears throat> who plays Gerda Millet. Yeah. Rex Harrison, who is a Marquis, Shirley MacLaine, who is um, <clears throat> the love interest of, of Maltese the Gangster. There's Omar Sharif, Alan Derang. And interesting, I'm not quite sure <clears throat> what part she plays. I can't remember. Is Joyce Grenfell. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, then there's also George C. Scott and Michael Horton, uh, amongst many more. Oh, it's, great it's really, cast. It's absolutely fantastic cast. Um, and the book has been described as an amazing and sometimes hilarious. And it was reissued in 1987 by a company called Amarayan Limited. Um, though I expect it might only be found in secondhand bookshops now. But oh, it's yeah. it's a good book and it's an equally good film. Well worth looking out for. Yes. Okay. And finally, I just wanted to mention, oh, I've got two finalies, actually. Uh, Val Biro, who is the preeminent artist and illustrator, mm-hmm. whose work you might be familiar with. If you have book collection from the 50s and 60s, and I've got to say I have, mm-hmm. um, you might recognise his work. So they've got fabulously evocative covers for authors such as Aldous Huxley, Neville Shute, and um, C.S. Forrester, so you might, on his seminal Hornblower series. Oh, yes. Um, and Valbiro's um, studio was in Amersham. Oh, and, right. Um, he was basically an illustrator, but he was also a children's author. And he based his books around his own vintage car called Gumdrop. Ah, lovely. And that was an Austin Clifton Heavy 12.4 
from 1926. Now, I've seen photographs of this, and it is very fabulous, too. Really? Uh, yeah, it's a bit like Chichi Chichi Bang Bang, but obviously without any of the, oh, the wings. Right. Yeah. And the, the plots usually involve the search for replacement parts for, uh, for Gundry. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I did have a friend who had a vintage car, and actually that was, that was his life, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for bits to glue back on. Absolutely, yes. And breaking down in the most oh. inappropriate of times. There were at least... There are 17 titles, I think, and plus 12 more in something called Gundrob Little Books. And they were published between the 60s and 80s. And uh, Biro and Gundrop were frequent visitors to car shows and events. And in 2014, um, there was a TV documentary called 100-Year-Old Drivers. And Biro and Gundrop uh, were in the programme, although sadly he died just before transmission. Oh, that's a pity. I know. And I think we can't do cars without talking about Stephen King. Oh, yes. The King of Horror, who has written two scary books about Christine, about cars, one of them called Christine, and which is a car possessed by a malevolent supernatural force. Uh, and this was made into a film the same year the book was published. Mm-hmm. But he's also done another one, From a Buick 8 is the title. And according to the back cover, I haven't read this one, but according to the back cover, it's a novel about our fascination with dealing things, about our insistence on answers when there are none, and about terror and courage in the face of the unknowable. Mm. And a little bit of um, fact, which we might find in a Christmas quiz somewhere, the title comes from Bob Dylan's song, From a Buick (laughs) Six. There you are. And uh, a film is about to be made about this book. So watch this space if you like horror movies. Oh, right. Well, it's very interesting because uh, Christine, I know. Yes. But I, I, I'd never heard of the Bu- um, from a Buick 8. Uh, no, that's really no, interesting. yeah. yeah. So, and and quite, a, quite old one as well. So Yes, that's right, yeah. yeah. Mm. So anyway, a film is about to be made of it, so Great. watch that. Right, so that's our cars in books. Haven't, haven't you got oh. a bit of a reading? No. no? Oh, I oh right. not. Oh, right, okay. Yes. That's fine. Yes. In fact, we do have a reading, but I think we're running out of time and there's just Oh right. So oh, much are we to Oh Lordy Lou, not oh, again. No. Oh, no. It's only halfway through the morning and we're already <laughs> running out of time. Locks are mercy. I know, well, I know. On. Let's track on. So what I've been doing what I've been doing this week is I have been looking at all of the major newspapers to find out their recommendations for books of the year. And, of course, any of these would make a fantastic Christmas present Mm. if you still have people to buy for, or, in fact, for yourself. Yes. I always believe, I'm a firm believer in buying Christmas presents for myself. Well, I think what it should be is uh, one present for you, one for me, one for you, one for me, one... Get your pens and pencils ready so you can jot these down. Yes, quite right. Now, of course, the book that has been included in everyone's list is Kazoo Ishiguro's uh, Clara and the Sun, published by Faber. So, of course, that is about an artificial friend, and it was published way back in March, and it is still there (laughs) in everyone's minds as one of the most satisfying reads of the year. So if you haven't read that, that's a definite uh, shout out um, mm-hmm. to get that. 
Um, Sally Rooney's, of course, Beautiful World, Why Are You? Published by Faber. Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads, published by Fourth Estate. And Elizabeth Strout's O. William, published by Viking, have all been mentioned on this programme and they've all been included in numerous newspapers. Um, They're all in their list of the best books for 21. So they're all strong, strong contenders. Indeed, indeed. So it was the books that haven't been mentioned on this programme before that we particularly want to draw your attention to today, starting with Ruth Ozeki's The Book of Form and Emptiness, published by Canongate. Um, this uh, being her first novel since um, winning the 2013 Booker, or rather being on the 2013 Booker shortlist. And it's a tale um, for the time being was the one on the list. And this one is a wry and metafictional tale of grief, attachment and growing up. That's a great title, isn't it? The book it of is, form isn't it? and emptiness. Book form of emptiness, yes. yes. So there's a similar sort of like science fiction reincarnation to Clara and the Sun in um, US novelist Richard Powers' book Bewilderment. And here you've got an astrophysicist who's mourning his dead wife and he uses AI technology called decoded neurofeedback to create her emotions in their son who's nine years old. That's spooky, isn't it? That is very spooky. Mm, yes. Well, then we go into Patricia Lockwood's uh, No One Is Talking About This, published by Bloomsbury, and it begins uh, a very funny satire um, about our obsession with the internet and especially social media. And it was chosen by both The Telegraph and by The Evening Standard. Yes, I think the first half of that book is sort of written in text speak. So it's really, you know, really quick, easy read. Uh, It's brilliant. It's really good. Yeah. Um, a, a book, a long listed book, A Town Called Solace, which I think is a ah, great title. That's a nice one, yes. <laughs> it's like a town called Alice, of course. Alice, uh, So, published by Chateau and Windus, uh, written by Mary Lawson. And it's a drama about three damaged people living in the 1970s Canada. And it's an old-fashioned narrative with sharp observation and no little humour. So, that that's a good one. Uh, and uh, the, the next up is The Promise by Damon Galgut, published by Chateau. He's now moved to Chateau. Um, uh, and there's no argument about this year's Booker Prize winner. I mean, he, this is the centre of white family's broken pledge to their black housekeeper in post-apartheid South Africa. Yes, I think that's good. That's very strong. Um, Harlem Shuffle by Colson Whitehead, Whitehead, sorry, uh, published by Fleet. And this is set amid the racial divisions of 1950s New York, mm. where an ambitious black businessman is seduced by the prospect of quick games in the city's criminal underworld. There's no mm. such thing as a quick profit, is there? No, there isn't. There isn't. Um, Loved and Missed by Susie Boyt, published by Virago, uh, priced at 16 1999. Um, for the emotionally astute storytelling, this rings um, <laughs> messily true to life, actually. Um, and look no further than this tender but steely novel. It's, it's set in North London. It's in a North London teacher who finds herself suddenly in charge of a newborn baby after her drug-addicted daughter, long since having gone AWOL, turns up out of the blue with this news. Gosh, that would be that would be a shocker. That would turn would, your life upside down. Uh, yes. Too right it would. Right, so a historical fiction, The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, published by Doubleday. This is 
irresistible. It's an audacious epic that takes flight from the very first page. It's got two charismatic heroines, one an adventurous aviatrix and the other a disgraced film star. And it's a dual time, so it soars between Prohibition America and contemporary Hollywood. And it tells a vivid, colourful tale of two women battling to live their best lives. Mm, interesting. Now, in in, in the crime um, section, um, there's April in Spain, which is by John Banville and published by Favour. Um, this successor to the Booker Prize winning Banville's first literary crime novel, Snow, again features his gentlemanly Irish detective, Sidgen Strafford. Um, and it, but it's set in Spain this time. And it's a lovely, it's an elegant story that doesn't lose its serpentine grip on the way um, to an absolutely fantastic finale. I've got to say, I love John Banville. And we were talking about snow uh, a few weeks ago. We were, yeah. we were. Now, if you like psycho thrillers, well, I've got to say I must be a bit of a fan. Um, For Your Own Good by Samantha Downing has been published by Michael Joseph and is recommended. And this is a ferociously funny black comedy about the splendid Ted Crutcher, who's a public school teacher who thrives on inventing hells for his entitled <laughs> pupils. <laughs> ah, sounds and I a think, good <laughs> you would be tempted, wouldn't you? You would. <laughs> <laughs> but things become weird when Fallon Knight, one of his victims from the past, suddenly turns up at the school as a teacher. Uh-huh. People start to die and matters go from strange to evil. This is original and startling. It certainly sounds like it it does. Um, In the popular uh, category, there is Still Life by um, Sarah Winmer. Uh, This is published by Fourth Estate. um, And it's a new book um, read by the Daily Mail critic um, this year. And it's about a motley group of Cockneys um, who leave the war-battered East End for the beauty and warmth and light of Florence. And we follow them through the subsequent decades. And it's a story full of love and friendship. Uh, And it's one of those stories that you actually wish was real. Ah, that sounds lovely then. Yeah. So chosen by the Evening Standard and also the Eye, we have uh, My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley. Now, Gwendolyn Riley is a bit of a genius and My Phantoms is her best novel to date. It's the mordant tale of a dysfunctional relationship between 40-something Bridget and her mother, Hen. So this might be an ideal Christmas gift for your mother if she has a sense of humour. So there is one group of readers who won't enjoy the book, the book and that's any action junkies uh, out there. But if you've ever found love and family in fiction riveting, well, you will just adore it. Oh, right. Now, th- this one I, I, I selected is um, could also probably go into one of the psycho categories. Mrs. March by Virginia Fito, and it's her debut novel. Yeah. And it's, it's about a paranoid housewife who starts to suspect that her novelist husband is writing about her. Uh, and it's an absolutely fantastic, um, gorgeous, gothic delight. And uh, you you don't really know um, if <laughs> when you read it, whether you really like Mrs. March or whether you want to feel sorry for her or if you want to be really scared of her. But you will be completely absorbed in her world. And I'm sure you'll want to hoover up the book from beginning to end in 
a couple of sittings, but who knows? It could be even be one sitting. It's a bit of a Shirley Jackson and a bit of Daphne du Maurier all mixed in. It is very elegant. It's a claustrophobic psychological portrait of a woman struggling with an almost non-existent self, sense of self. Oh, that sounds great, actually. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Yeah, really good. And uh, finally, uh, chosen by Alice Jones, who's the art editor in the eye, in the eye. Um, and she was saying that out of all the books that she's read this year, she the one that's made the most lasting impression on her is Delicacy by Katie Wicks, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the comedian. So she's written a memoir about cake and death, and and what's <laughs> not to like about that? Um, and uh, Katie Wicks was recently starred as Carol in Stathleth's Flats. I don't know if I've been on telly. Anyway. Right, So yes. Wicks tells her life story, probing her feelings about grief and sex and body image and food and family and recovery. And it's mesmerisingly good. So that's a, that's a great one to look out for. It, it, it does indeed, yes. Yes, yes. A memoir about cake. Well, I'm not sure about the death bit, but the cake is quite nice. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and of course... We are now the 15th of December and all the television schedules have come out for Christmas. They have, they have. Um, And in fact, I was reading uh, middle of the day where a lot of people are rather complaining that the BBC's lineup is exactly the same as as last year's. Mind you, there there is a tradition for this because I think it was Arthur Askey uh, once was asked, I think in the 1950s, um, on on what was then known as the wireless um, and the light programme. And he was asked, you know, what what were the uh, programmes that were going to be broadcast over Christmas? And he said, they're going to be the same as we've had all year, but just with holly round them. (laughs) Yes, Exactly. <laughs> but I think actually there are quite a few good ones out. I'm going to stick up for the TV schedulers here because I've been looking at which ones have been inspired by books. Mm-hmm. Obviously, on the off chance that you either you can watch the television program, that's absolutely fine because sometimes that's all you want to do. But if you enjoy it, then go to the bookshops and buy the book. And there's been some great ones that will get us into the Christmas spirit, mm. I thought. Well, I think also at this time, what, what is interesting, apart from, yes, you, you, you've you got the sort of uh, Strictly Come Dancing with Holly round it and you've got those regulars. But the but BBC and ITV do do invest quite a bit in, and, and will do a nice Christmas or something special for Christmas, yes. as you say, yes. where they will pick something, uh, whether it is whether it is a, a, a one-hour programme or a two-hour programme or a, a mini-series, yes. but they'll make some effort. Absolutely. To, Thing juicy to, to watch, whether it's a murder mystery or if it's some, some element of, of, of romance, but you normally get something. And as you're right, it usually comes out from uh, a book. Yes. <clears throat> so do you want to start with our first choice then? Uh, right. Yes, indeed. Well, um, Channel 4 is uh, going to show on Christmas Day The Abominable Snow Baby, uh, which is based on Terry Pratchett's Pratchett's best-selling uh, collection of Father Christmas's fake beard. Now, Sir Terry Pratchett, uh, OBE, mind you, I don't know why we bother with the OBE because he was made uh, Sir, so he was the OBE indeed, is almost yes. irrelevant by then, um, is uh, most famously the author of the Discworld series, which tremendously popular um but this is a really delightful book and no doubt the tv program um will make a really good tv program and it's uh, it, it 
and it, the story is that after a heavy snowfall um, in a, a cosy little English town, it, it gets upended by the arrival of a two-storey tall abominable snow baby. Now, will its residents learn to embrace their visitor in time for Christmas? Fantastic. And as you quite rightly say, Terry Pratchett has got an amazing imagination. Mm. Certainly the disc world, absolutely. Yeah. So I we actually met Terry Pratchett. Oh, oh, did you? Yeah. So my friend was in an amateur dramatic performance and they were doing Guards, Guards at Abingdon Theatre. And ah. Terry Pratchett, bless his heart, goes along to the first performance of every new production of uh, his his books. Oh, right. Isn't, ah. that, isn't that just yes. a brilliant thing to do? Yes. And yeah, the very Abington nice. Theatre is yeah. a tiny little thing. It was, it was fabulous. And I was very, very impressed. Um, right. And it wouldn't be Christmas without a Julia Donaldson adaption. Uh, obviously, best known for Gruffalo, but her new book out for Christmas um, is an old favourite that's been televised called Superworm, which mm. is on, on Christmas Day as well. And it follows the adventures of an intrepid worm as he saves his garden chums with his power of flexibility and contortion. Aha. Think super <laughs> Superman and that sort yes. of thing. Yeah, exactly. Worm-shaped. Yeah. <laughs> Well, not to be disappointed for the uh, for those fans of spooky stories, because um, Mr. James, who we 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 have uh, talked about a few weeks ago, um, his um, story, the Mezzotint, um, has been popularised uh, as the notion of a festive ghost story, um, and it's going to be in his annual Christmas it was his annual Christmas Eve storytelling gatherings, uh, and this story revolves around a man who stumbles upon a mysterious uh, Mezzotint, which is an engraving. Um, of a country house which it transpires seems to have a life of its own oh isn't that scary mm, it is and it is i have to say i've read that story because i love i love all of the mr james stories and that is extremely extremely spooky yeah mm. that's great Do watch it yeah that's christmas eve definitely mm-hmm. harlan coburn the american writer who always seems to be on a one-man mission to fill airport bookshops around the world because he has so many books out there and they're always massive bestsellers. Anyway, he's just signed a five-film deal with Netflix recently and they've already adapted a 2015 thriller of his, The Stranger, and this year his, uh, an earlier hit of his, Stay Close, has been adapted. And it's detailing how some staid suburban lives of three characters are smashed by an unexpected tragedy. And this is coming out on New Year's Eve on Netflix. Oh, right. Um, Ploughing Similar Turf uh, to Stay Close is J.P. Delaney's psychological thriller based on his 2016 novel, The Girl Before. And it traces a young woman who falls in love with a beautiful minimalist house that seems haunted by the presence of the architect who designs it. That sounds uh, like it has shades of Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca in this. Yes. Um, Catch the programme. It's on the 19th of December. um, Or just go back to the best-selling book. Yes, quite right. And then finally, we've got a classic adventure story, which is Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days. Now, this has attracted loads of adaptions. Mm, Um, And I suppose it's just a winning simplicity of a plot, isn't it? A bored Victorian gentleman adventurer who undertakes a bet to circumnavigate the globe in 
well, less than 80 days. And I think also Phileas Fogg's just such a brilliant character. Mm. Enthusiast and idealist and slightly scatty adventure. Inventor, rather. Mm. Um, Anyway, this version has David Tennant in. So do buy the book because that is a winner. But by all means, watch David Tennant on Boxing Day. Well, I, I shall certainly be doing that. And there are a number of repeats that are showing over Christmas and also worthy to buy and read um, as books. And these include... Darling Buds of May by H.E. Bates. All Creatures Great and Small by James Herriot. And local author Robert Thorogood uh, is screenwriter and author whose successful crime drama, Death in Paradise, is also available in paperback and on audio. Gosh, indeed. You are listening to River Radio, the voice of the Thames Valley, and don't forget, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have uh, a favourite author or a particular book you're reading at the moment, uh, please do get in touch. Drop me a line at julian at river.radio with any of your um, suggestions or recommendations or anything you might want to tell us about, and we will uh, use that in future shows. Now, our hour is almost up, so a very big It was the night before Christmas Ooh. when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Oh, I was going to Ooh. play that as a surprise, but it surprised me. Well, it was a surprise. Do you yeah. want to play it? I'll play I'll play it slightly later, but you, you can okay. finish finish what you were going to say. Well, Maybe I was just, just going to say, our hour is almost up, and it's just saying a very big thank you for listening, but there's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a poem a little for bit you. Of a, yeah, there's a little bit of a trick. You know, yeah. We're getting into the Christmas mood You here. are, you are. You're getting so excited. <laughs> do, I get, do I get excited about Christmas? Tell me about that. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it is one that we might repeat next week, mind you. But I was just thinking that uh, when you were talking about um, get in touch, that we were talking about poetry last week and that yes. how we'd like to do more poetry. Yes, indeed. So, um, Joy Pinnell's out there. Um, you get through your list of poems and do some recommendations. And, Drop us a line. And somebody's been in touch about this poem, their Christmas poem. So oh, I, just, I just want to yes. play this. Oh, do, do. Thank I wonder you. who's read it. "'Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house "'not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. "'The stockings were hung by the chimney with care "'in hopes that St Nicholas soon would be there. "'The children were nestled all snug in their beds "'while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, "'and Mamma in her kerchief and I in my cap "'had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. "'When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, "'I sprang from the bed to see what was the matter.' Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the lustre of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes should appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St Nick. More rapid than eagles, his courses they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As dry leaves are before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle, mount to the sky. So up to the housetop the courses they flew, with a sleigh full of toys and St Nicholas too. And then in a twinkling I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St Nicholas came with a bound.' 
He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was all white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowlful of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night! Well, there we are. That was a, a nice little treat. And just before we go, I just wanted to mention that uh, next week we are going to have a treat for you because we're going to have um, a, a, a reading from um, a, an audio tape published by Baker Street Press, which is on the Christmas Carol, which is a favourite for us all. So tune in next week. Absolutely. That is going to be fantastic. And we're going to get somebody from Baker Street Press uh, to tell us all about these books, which are we, retellings of classics and really indeed really good so uh they're ideal for younger readers or those of us like me who want to be brilliantly well read so don't miss next week it's been charming to have your um your company now and we look forward to